Today's reading is, comes from Luke 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had an estate manager, and charges were brought to him that the steward was wasting the rich man's life. And the rich man called the steward and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account books of your stewardship, for you can no longer be manager. <clears throat> and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from, the, from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, the manager said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. The already fired steward said to him, take your bill and write 80. Then the master commanded the dishonest manager for his prudence, for the sons of this age are wiser in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Thanks, Sam. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 16, and where um, you'll find the story that Sam just read for us. Um, really clear-cut story, right? Um, one that everybody understands intuitively right off the beginning, right? So, so we have, as a faith family, this is the way we kind of look at life. So we think fundamentally um, that the thing that shapes our life is the reality that, um, that God created us, that God sustains us, that God saves us, and that he does that um, through the person of Jesus, through Jesus' life. And that Jesus' life is not merely an act of our salvation, but gives us a way in which we can know God and know how to live with God. So in other words, the life of Jesus, the way that Jesus understands life and how life works with God and with one another is how we are meant to be able to see our lives. So rather than starting a year off um, as uh, maybe culturally is normative um, or just practically um, is normative of trying to assess um, the year past and look forward to the year ahead and try to figure out all the things we want to do better and all that kind of stuff, we say, yeah, we, we want to do that. But we want to do that through the lens, through the, the, the clarity of what is most true about life, and that is life with God through Jesus. And so every year we start off reading the stories of Jesus, letting the stories that Jesus tells, specifically the parables about the kingdom of God, this reality of God with us and God for us in Jesus. We let his stories kind of hit us a little bit. We let ourselves kind of immerse ourselves into the stories so that we can, by God's grace, see what uh, our aspirations should be, where the things that we need to change might be, what the thing, what life would be different if we believed and saw clearly what life with God was really like. How might that impact the way that we live with one another, with our neighbors, with God? And so, um, so we look at these parables and we enter into these parables because we think that Jesus enlightens us as John begins his gospel story. That he's the true light. And this true light came into the world to enlighten everyone, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own dominion, John says. He came to his own kingdom, and yet his own did not receive him. And so we recognize as we begin the year that sometimes we get a little confused of how God really works, how God thinks about us, what our response to God is meant to be, all those kind of things. And so again, we start the year off in these stories. And while you might think that we should start the year off like in stories that are super clear, um, the reality is this story of all the stories, uh, at least for myself, and has become true for our faith family, is one of the most shaping and continuing to shape. And so 
the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some more familiar stories. We looked at the story that actually precedes this story in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 15. Um, what's probably in your, in your Bible is called the parable of the prodigal son. But we, we saw the real, the real main character, the real center of the story was the compassionate father, right? The, the two sons are in there. There's a son who runs and a son who stays. Both squander the things they've been given, and yet it's the father and his compassion that shapes both every aspect of the story, that frees them to squander, um, that empowers them when they squander and invites them into fullness, even in the midst of their lack of clarity, right? And so, and then last week, we looked at the parable in Matthew of um, the labors in the vineyard, which we also discovered was not really the center of the story. The, the labors were not the center. The center of the story was the, um, the compassionate householder, the one who set the tone in nature for the labor and the work that was being done, that set the structure and the generosity of dignifying and providing with equity all inequality all those who were under his care. And this is the nature of the king. This is the nature of the kingdom that we find ourselves in. But today's story, while there's definitely a part of, um, of, the, of the fact that there's a character in there who, um, who's the centering kind of point, this story, you can't help but, but see that the main character is us. <laughs> like we're the ones who are really the kind of center of the story, at least the character we identify with, right? So like while we said the last couple of weeks that while we identify with the prodigal or the, 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 um, the older brother, while we might find ourselves as one of the laborers, um, really the main person was the compassionate father, um, or the humiliating father and the compassionate householder. Um, but today we really are kind of the center of the story and that's kind of the point. That the person that we're meant to identify with and that gives or the dishonest managers, maybe your translation kind of heads it, but the wise gambler. And so at first hearing, we, we, um, we may think um, this is a really odd story, right? And that none of us want to be the wise gambler, <laughs> the dishonest manager. That that's not ideally what we would want to be, right? Nobody wants to be called dishonest. <laughs> none of us want to get in a place where we feel like we have to act dishonestly in order to survive. And yet, um, it seems like that this is what Jesus encourages us. I mean, look at the, the, last, the last verse of the parable. Like, doesn't it sound like Jesus is um, encouraging um, unethical behavior, illegal behavior, um, the defrauding of somebody? When he says this, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for, and, and depending on your translation, he either says prudence or shrewdness. Prudence or shrewdness. This idea of acting wisely, he commends the dishonest manager, so he calls him dishonest, but he also says he acted wisely. He says, for the sons of this age are wiser, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so surely this, is, this isn't what happened. It's not what happened, right? Jesus isn't condoning unethical behavior, and he's not encouraging us to act with, um, with with a defrauding sense, right? Like that's surely not what, what's what's happening. The defrauding steward cannot be the hero, right? Like that would that would screw up our entire way of thinking. That would that would mess up our understanding of the kingdom completely. And so it's no wonder that throughout our um, our faith history, um, this has become one of the most challenging and widely debated of all parables, <laughs> maybe of all of Jesus' parables. In part, for most of church history, we Christians try to figure out a way to make Jesus not say this. 
either by claiming that these aren't really the words of Jesus, some have gone that far, or by allegorizing the story and therefore making Jesus not say what Jesus seems to be saying. So how do we kind of work through that tendency of ours, that, that morality of ours to not want Jesus to say this? Because we all feel uncomfortable in it, right? Like if we can just admit that, we'll be okay. Like we're, we're a part of the whole lot. We've, we're, we're, we're in line with some of the best thinkers and godliest people throughout history. If we're a bit confused that Jesus said this in our confusion, so it's okay. But so how do we decipher through it? How do we get into the middle of this story without just dismissing it as if Jesus didn't say it or try to change what Jesus said to fit our understanding of life? How do we discern that? It might be helpful, I think, for us if we can see the structure of the parable in its original poetic form, the way it was originally kind of constructed. When we do, we notice that there's seven stanzas. And I think we've got a slide for this that kind of shows it for us. Encapsulated by the interaction between the rich man and the steward, and is this still on? No, it's not. You can hear me okay? Great. So, um, all right. So, um, so encapsulated by the rich man and the steward, at one point he accuses the steward. At the, at the end, he affirms the steward. In the middle, there's a problem and a solution. But the centerpiece is verse four, where the manager, the 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 one who screws, screws things up, who, who squanders and wastes his, his role and, at the, and is dishonest in his response, has an idea. And both structurally and thematically, that's the center of the story. Structurally and grammatically, that's um, um, thematically, this is where the crux kind of lies. This is what Jesus is encouraging us. And, and so seeing the structure is, is essential because it highlights, again, the action that Jesus is affirming. And we'll come back to this in a minute. But it still doesn't stop our moral compass from spinning out of control, right? Because what's his idea? What is his, what is he, his idea? His idea is to do something illegal, to change the books. Before turning in the books, he wants to change them into uh, a place where he will ensure that he has a job in the community. That's what verse 4 is talking about. It's not saying that people will take him into his home as if they'll just give him compassion and, and mercy because he treated him well. It's actually the idea that he'll have a job, that, that whatever he's about to do will show the community that he knows what he's doing, that he's actually wise, and that they'll receive him in and give him opportunity to use his gifting, his wisdom, what he has for their benefit. That's the idea of verse four. So his idea is to take advantage of the position that he has to take advantage of the master so that he can stay a part of the community and use his gifts in the community to continue to be a part of it. That's the crux of the idea. But that still, again, doesn't keep us from wondering like what is going on here. And so the most, like the modern and most popular explanation given to relieve this tension that we feel in this. And I want to explain this just because I think it exposes, at least for me, um, some of the things that I tend to think about the father our God, the king in the, in the nature of his kingdom, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Like some of the ways we explain our ways through this actually reveals some of the ways we misunderstand the kingdom. That we're like, John says, we don't receive the grace and truth of the reality of God with us and for us in Jesus. And so we tend to kind of look past it. And so the, the most common explanation to relieve our moral tension is that the manager is correcting an unjust price set by the master. Has anybody heard that? If you've, ever, if you've ever heard this preached, usually that's the way it kind of leans. Um, is that, listen, the manager uh, is 
All he's doing is that the rich man has taken advantage of his position because, and we, we say this silently, we never say it out loud, right? Because the only way a rich person gets rich is by taking advantage of those who are less, right? So, so obviously, there's playing on a bit of our own prejudice, playing on a, on a bit of even first century, this would have been the idea, right? A rich man generally has more than everyone else, and if he has more, that means other people have less, and so he's gotten his more because he's gotten more out of the people who have less. There's that general kind of us against them assumption in every time and place in history, right? And so obviously, like, the, the, the manager is just correcting this overtaxation, this, 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 this going above and beyond what he could have charged, should have charged uh, for the people. And so he's just making, making it just and right and fair. And so in some ways, he's acting like Robin Hood, who was a lord who was a part of the system, but jumps out of the system and therefore takes advantage of the system and gives back to those who are oppressed by the system, right? Into the poor. Like that the, the steward is acting like a Robin Hood to some extent. Even if at some level he has to confess his own participation in it, like he still makes the decision to go and to, and to act on behalf of the people. And so that's how he's going to be ingratiated in. He's going to be like Robin Hood. They're going to protect him from, from, the, um, from the, the, the government who's going to come and try to take, take him back and put him in prison, right? They're going to protect him from all those things. That's one way of looking at it. Or if that, that feels a little too off for us, another way of explaining it is that, well, the steward is, all he's doing is denying his own commission in the cells, in the rental agreements. So like, kind of like a tax collector, the way he got his proceeds was to mark up a bit of the, the price of the rental, and that's what he lived on. Like, that's what he got is, is his commission. And so he is denying that part of it and giving to the people what, what is just a straight deal from the, from the master. And so either he's just acting wisely because he's protecting himself, he's setting himself up and ingratiating himself to those he's renting from, so they can be like, okay, like, listen, it's, it's a quid pro, 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 quid pro quo. Like, I'm about to lose my job, and when I do, listen, I've given you a big break, so why don't you help me out and give, give me a break? Or he's like Zacchaeus, who's like, listen, like, I kind of see my wrong, and so I'm going to sacrifice what is legally and rightfully mine, even if unjustly so, so for the benefit of the whole community. But either way, in either way we try to explain it away, the steward gets away with what he's doing, right? It's not dishonest. At best, it's, it's dishonest, but it's just. It's not unethical because he's actually helping other people. It's sacrificial. He acts with righteousness to save himself, either by correcting a wrong of another, again, even if he was complicit in it, correcting the wrong of the master and overcharging, or at the very least is self-giving of his sh- and sacrificial for his short-term future to ensure his long-term gain. Regardless, the steward is assuring that he is set up for a long run and thus he is wise. And that's what Jesus is describing, right? That's what Jesus is, is con- condoning, con- um, affirming, that he acted shrewdly for himself and others in correcting an injustice of overcharging. And that's a worthy of imitation, isn't it? Doesn't that sound right? Like, doesn't that that answer all of, our, all of our internal questions of what's going on. But here's the thing. When we think about it for a second, have any of the other parables that we've read, that we've looked at, the, the one that immediately precedes this, the prodigal son, for instance, has any of those given us a, uh, even a passing reflection that the kingdom is about acting righteously to save oneself? Has it, has it ever 
given us that impression? That God with us and for us is about figuring out how to get, our, to get out of our own predicament the best that we can? Has that ever been the thing that the, the parables have explained? I mean, from what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, all it is is that, that the only way to get out of your predicament is to confess your need, to be willing to be needy. So something seems a little bit off. If we can't, is the nature of the kingdom and the character of the king, is it to take advantage of people? Because again, that's what we're kind of painting in a picture if the steward is one who acts justly. Because the one who charges the land, the one who's renting, is obviously in the wrong. And he corrects the wrong, one way or another. He either lets the steward get away with overtaxation or he's the one himself that is overtaxing. Have we got the impression at all that the king and the nature of his kingdom is overtaxation in any way? If we can't answer yes to that, then there must be something that we're missing in the story. That our explanation must be missing something at least a little bit. So how do we figure that out? What might we be misunderstanding? Well, to begin with, we often, again, miss that this story is naturally connected to Luke's story just before this. The, the break in, six, in between chapter 15 and 16 is an unnatural break. Like in the original text, it's not there, right? And so, but we tend to kind of let it flow into it. And so our minds, like in the way that we work, we read the, the story of the prodigal and then we, it just kind of is by itself and then we just kind of go off. But in the way Luke is telling the story, this story directly follows. And the break actually happens grammatically uh, at 6-9, where Luke uses a word, and I tell you, which is the way he transitions kind of subjects and topics. So the way we read it in our English Bibles doesn't allow us to kind of flow with it. This is a connection. This is a continuation of the, actually the four parables that came before it. This is the fifth in the line of parables that, that Jesus is telling about the kingdom of God. And we can't remove what we've learned about the kingdom of God from those parables and what we experience in this parable. It's really important that we don't lose the connection. Luke 1, 16, 1 through 8 is a parable told um, to tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, scribes, and disciples that come from chapter 15, verse 1, who have been listening to Jesus tell the previous parables. So Jesus must be continuing the conversation, enlightening both sinners and saints to the nature and character of the king and his kingdom. That's what he's continuing to do. The clarity of the previous parables in Luke and like the compassionate householder that we talked about last week gave us a vision of a king and a kingdom full of genuine sacrificial compassion and mercy of one who loses one sheep, leaves the 99 and goes and finds him, who celebrates at the finding of one coin, who throws a giant party when it seems like such a little thing happens and is worth worth spending all the resources on, who, when he sees a son who's, who's basically told him to die, runs after him and takes the death for him and gives him and restores him everything. That's the, that's the idea that we've seen so far of the king and the kingdom. That he's after restoration and dignification. He elevates those under his care, even those who have run off and squandered everything, so that they might flourish through the king's actions, the nature of his life with him. In these parables, we learn of God's tenacity for salvation. We also find ourselves as sinners, right? We find ourselves as prodigals who have squandered or wasted our relational inheritance, as image bearers on pursuing everything our stomachs desire. But we've also just found ourselves as saints, as older brothers, um, as ones who've labored all day and at the end don't feel like we got what we deserved, that we deserve more than what we got, who 
also have squandered and wasted our inheritance through a stingy and embittering belief that we're earning something rather than realizing we are always with the Father and that all that we need is already ours. We see this connection clearly when we start to compare the characters in themes and the humiliating father, the prodigal son, and the wise gambler side by side. So let's just do that really quick. And I think some of these things will pop out for us. So in both stories, the story directly preceding this and the prodigal son, the, what we've called the humiliating father, both the younger son and the manager betrayed the trust of those who have provided for them. The father's trust in the first story, remember the, the prodigal asks, he basically says to the father, die, because I want what you have and I can only get it at your death. Like, so die, legally die, give me what's mine. There's a trust, his relationship is broken, right? And in the same way, the, 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 the manager betrays the master's trust. He doesn't do, live up to his responsibilities. He doesn't do with what he's been given because it's a, it's a high role within, the, within the, the family. It's a high role within the community, within the organization. And he doesn't meet the expectations. And so at some level, he's broken the trust of the rich man, the one who employs him, the one who's given him his responsibility. So both stories begin with this idea of broken trust, broken relationship. In the humiliating father, the son recognizes his offense and offers no excuse. Remember eating with the pigs? He realizes, listen, even in my house, my father's household, servants have more than enough. I can go back and say and confess truly that I am I'm unworthy to be your son. And even if I have the idea of becoming a servant, but when he sees the father humiliate himself by running, he's like, he doesn't even offer an excuse. He just says, I'm unworthy. And the father restores him in fullness, right? And in the same way, the manager's confronted. And we'll talk about it in a second. No, at no place, in, especially in Middle Eastern um, uh, context in history, is an underling, somebody underneath authority, fired without some sort of pushback, without some sort of argument, without some sort of pleading for restoration or at least continuation of opportunity. Like nowhere in any written, oral, or like just pragmatic history is that true. And so he doesn't say anything, and in not saying anything, he's like the younger son who recognizes, I have nothing to say. I have squandered it. I have wasted it. The younger son entrusts himself to the compassion of the father character. And we'll see in just a second that the manager does the same thing. That even though he's broken trust, even though he's recognized the broken trust, he still entrusts himself to the one who has life. Both the younger brother and the manager experience extraordinary mercy and generosity. In the first, one gets restored to his sonship, a party, everything that he's lost, everything that he's squandered, everything he's given up on is given back to him, and there's a celebration and restoration. And the second implied is an allowance for the manager to remain a part of the community to continue to use his gifts and abilities for the benefit of the community under the care and the direction of the rich man. Most importantly, both the prodigal and the manager squander or waste that which they have been given to steward. This is how we know that they're connected, right? Most clearly. In, in chapter 15, verse 13, it says of the prodigal, he squandered his property. And remember when we talked about that? Property is not an idea of like material things. The, the, the original language, the, the term used is this idea of life. He squandered the life source, the life uh, sustenance that was given to him by his father. He wasted it in reckless living and unwise living and not being able to make the most out of life on his own apart from the father. 
In, in uh, Luke 16, verses one, verse one, uh, it says this man, talking about the, the manager or the steward, was wasting his possessions, the rich man's possessions. In the original language, it's the same word, squander and waste. The same word. He did the same thing the prodigal did. He squandered the rich man's possessions. Just as the prodigal squandered the father's life, the manager squanders the rich man's possessions, the, the rich man's sustenance, life source of life. They've both somehow not been able to get the most out of what they've been given through their relationship to the one who has life. Life to give, life to steward, life to live on. But they're both given the opportunity and responsibility to do so, and both of them failed to live up to that expectation. They squandered it. It's gone, it's wasted. It didn't become all that it could have become. Their lives didn't become all that they could have become. They didn't last as long as they could have lasted. One commentator notes that the story of the wise gambler may be regarded as an appendix to the parable of the prodigal son. I would suggest that it's not so much an appendix as it is the same story told for the benefit of the older brother. The prodigal son ends with the the father pleading to the older brother to come in. The older brother offends the father. The older brother rebukes the father. The older brother shows the embitterness of his heart to what he's missed, and the father says, listen, why are you missing out on life? All, I've already died for you. I've already become legally dead for you. Everything you have is already given to you. So why aren't you taking advantage of it? Come inside. All that you see is yours. And this story is told to encourage the older brother to take that step. Because we don't, we don't know what happened to the older brother. And this story is a story that Jesus tells to encourage older brothers, who I would argue are more like most of us, um, than prodigals to take the next step, to come inside, to recognize what the older brothers miss and why our hearts become embittered to our life in the kingdom. We've, Jesus has invited the tax collectors and the sinners um, through the prodigal in some way, if you wanna kind of compare and contrast, and now he's speaking to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the ones who've committed their lives and given their lives over to say, hey, listen, life in the kingdom is expansive. So why are you making it so small? And I think that's the story that, um, again, for all of us, that whether because of um, distraction, disappointment, difficulty, disillusionment, we all have at times struggled to live fully into the thing which God has given us. The giftings God's given us, the life with him he's given us. And maybe we've messed up in that. Maybe we've squandered it in some ways or feel like we've squandered it at times or maybe we don't even think about it. Think about it at all. At some point, we'll all find ourselves wondering, wondering, have we really lived up in full, fullness of faith to the things that we've been given by God? That we'll see what's going on in other people's lives, in the lives of those around us, and wonder, why don't we have those things? That we'll see the freedom and the joy of the father character celebrating the son's return and wonder why that's not us or the laborers who came in at the last hour receiving what we received, and why don't we get more? And at this dilemma, we'll face, what are we gonna do? (laughs) What do we do when we feel like we've screwed up in the kingdom? When maybe we're missing out because we haven't lived up to expectations because we screwed up. We, We weren't good stewards. Or why are we missing out because, like, it seems like we've done everything right, and we don't, we're not getting all that we receive. And this story is told for us. And so if this is true, that the story of the dishonest manager is a continuation of the parable before it, 
then what we know is it has little to do with moral behavior and more to do with responding to the nature of the king and his kingdom. Responding to the nature of the king and his kingdom. If the first two stories we looked at were helping us see the nature of it, to recognize the nature of it, this parable is helping us learn how to respond to it. And if that is the purpose, then the story is not, as we'll see, exhorting us to immoral behavior, nor self-salvation, but rather encouraging us to live confidently in the light of God with us, to live confidently in the truth of God for us, to an invitation for us to live differently with the clarity and courage of that wisdom. That's what we're after. And so this leads us to the second reason that I think that we tend to miss this parable. If the first reason is, is that um, um, we tend to, in some ways, kind of not see the connection and the flow of this parable, the second reason is that we're not first century Jews, right? Culturally, we don't necessarily get everything that's going on in the story. And so we read it from our own cultural lenses, which is normal. And so what do we need to do? What are the things that if we kind of understood a little more culturally what was happening, we might see a little better? And so quickly, let me just kind of point out a few of these things. What are some of the insights that we can gain from cultural hints that the first listeners would have picked up on without explanation? First, the, the rich man or master is not cheating anyone, but rather is respected by the community. Respect, respect that carries with it an affection and a desire for his good. We know this in verse one, because it says there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Charges are not brought against the manager if the master is not ethical. If the people are being taken advantage of, they're gonna let the rich man be taken advantage of by others, by somebody else. If he was a foreign manager, like he didn't live amongst the community, he was somebody who was a rich man who lived out of the area, again, agricultural type setting, maybe lived in the city and owned the land outside of the city. And so he's disconnected from the community. It was actually culturally appropriate to let that person be taken advantage of by those within the community. Because it was assumed that that man really wasn't the one who really knew and understood and loved the land and the community, but the ones who were there doing it. And so if he, if he was being taken advantage of, he's, that's actually a good thing. Like that's actually, like, that's good for all the local people. So none of the local people would come and tell him that he's being taken advantage of, that someone is squandering or wasting the things that are his. So just by that one sentence at the very first, the first century Jew would have recognized, okay, this rich man lives in the community. He's a part of the land. He's a part of the, the relationships and he's good because somebody is, is bringing to light something that's not good happening in his, under his care and watch, okay? So again, no one would report it if, if, he was, if he was a glory hungry tyrant or if he was a distant deity and so that is not who the rich man is, right? He's not glory hungry. He's not distant. He's intimate and personal. And so we know this from the very beginning. So like automatically that, that should dissuade us from all the other interpretations that we've kind of come used to, right? Like that can't be what's happening. He's, he's a loved person, loved by the community, and he does good for the community. So second, there's an expectation that the manager would fight back against the accusation, right? So really quickly in verse two, it says the rich man, the, the, the master, he called the steward in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? And in the, in the way it's told in the original language is split up, there's like a pause there. This is a normal confrontational deal. It's not he's asking 
for things. It's like God went in the Garden of, of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned, and he said, where are you, and who told you these things? Is God really asking Adam and Eve where they are and who told them these things, like he doesn't know what happened? No, like this, the way this works, especially in Middle Eastern cultures, is like he's saying, he's, he is basically setting up the, the, the steward to kind of put himself in a trap, right? Like the, the manager, uh, the master already knows everything. And so he wants to see, is this man going to be honest? Is this man going to, to confess up? Is this man going to fight back and try to manipulate? All those kind of things, like, right? It's kind of like a test. And in some ways he passes the test. He doesn't say anything. So in not saying anything, He's admitting his own participation in it. He's admitting his own guilt in it. But it's not like he's trying, the master's trying to figure out what's going on. He knows what's going on. And the, the wisdom of the manager is to not say anything and dig his hole deeper. To not try to explain himself away. To not try to make, like, to make an excuse like this. Like, um, well, I don't have a thousand eyes. I can't see everything. So if there's stuff not going right, like, it's obviously, I'm just limited. It's just my limitations. I'm just limited. Of course, things are going to not always work out as expected. Of course, not all the resources are going to return in the way that they're meant to. Like, I mean, what do you expect? Do you expect perfection? I'm just limited. Or maybe he would say, well, like, I want to meet those who are accusing me. I mean, that would have been normal. Who are my accusers? How can I confront them? How can I prove that they're liars? Like, that, that's actually really normal and expected. Or, or if it came, came down to it, because this person, the, the manager, the steward, is very influential in the community, like is, is a part of everybody's lives, he would have called his own witnesses, his influential friends, to argue on his behalf to the rich man that this is not this person's character. That they would not, they are more gifted and, great and good at this, so like whatever you're seeing, you're not seeing right. That would have been the normal expectation of everybody who's listening to this story that that would have been how the steward would have responded. That, that he would, again, that he would try to fight for his position. Like he would say even something like, hey, listen, my family has served with your family for generations. Why would you break this up over some sort of money thing? Why, or why would I betray your trust? Or look at my limitations. Or, hey, I've got these people who will tell, tell you that it, this is not true. One longtime Middle Eastern resident um, said it this way, said, I have both observed and questioned people in positions of authority and never seen or heard a case of an underling when dismissed walking out of the room without pleading to be reinstated. Such behavior is unimaginable. So, this, so in the other stories, the father's behavior is unimaginable, right? In the way the father character responds, he humiliates himself. He dies to himself legally. He runs across for the son. In this story. It's the steward's response that is unbelievable, unexpected. And it's simply that he doesn't fight back against the accusations. He, didn't, he doesn't try to explain away his own failures. So what, what the listeners would hear in the manager's silence is a confession of his complicity, his guilt, right? The same as the prodigal son, like, who recognized, like, hey, listen, I, I messed this up. I squandered this. Um, like the prodigal, the steward recognizes that he's indeed squandered, wasted what he's been given, but like the older brother, he can't admit it. <laughs> like the older brother, he, he has a hard time specifically saying what the younger brother says, that I'm not worthy, that I've messed up, that I'm in need. But his silence says it for him. 
The lack of self-defense reveals that he recognizes his place of need. And how awesome is that, just to think about it for a second? That it's not, the, not even the confession that was needed. It was just his willingness not to fight back, to be self-defensive. I mean, how incredible is that? Like, just let that soak in for half a second. So already, like, the listeners' minds would have been wondering, okay, so what's going on in this story? We have a loving, rich man who has, has, has found that somebody's squandering it, so the expectation is now for that person to either fight back, but if that person doesn't fight back, well, then how, like, then he's going to get fired, right? That's going to be the, the consequence, because that's the normal consequence. The, the law of the day actually was that if a person at this level of the, of the steward were to be irresponsible with their resources because their resources and what they're responsible for impacted the entire community. It had implications on everybody's lives. And if they were to be ones who screwed up with what they've been given responsibility for, they had to be punished. There had to be recompense. They had to pay back that which they squandered. And if they could not do so, they were relegated, they and their family, to indentured servanthood. That was the law. That was absolutely what was required. You screw it up, you pay for it. You break it, you buy it, right? And with that high responsibility came high accountability. That tremendous weight, right? And so what happens is the manager doesn't fight back because we think he'd fight back. Just normally would fight back, but definitely fight back knowing that that's the weight, right? That's the, the, that's the consequences of his sin. And yet he doesn't. And then we would expect that the rich man doing what is just by law would fire him. And not just fire him, but remove him to a place, prosecute him in a way that everything is exposed and this man has to pay back everything that has been lost. But that's not what happens. Instead, the manager is re-enlightened to something extraordinary. Look, and again, in verse three, or verse two, um, it says, after he says, I hear this about you, there's silence. The, man, the rich man says, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. We read that, it's like, oh, he's fired. No, like, that's like, that's sweet mercy. Because <laughs> what he expected to hear is pay me back. What he expected to hear was you're going to jail. You're going into indentured servanthood. Now all this responsibility is on you. Not simply you're dismissed. And dismissed is a lot, right? There's a weight to being dismissed, his livelihood and all that kind of stuff. But his life is still his. His life is still his. He received judgment. He didn't live up to expectations, but also his mercy. Extremely generous mercy. Mercy that goes counterintuitive to the very nature and culture of the time. And so he learns, he's re-enlightened to something extraordinary, that the master is both, expects obedience and acts in judgment on the disobedient servant, the servant who doesn't do with what he's been given well, but he also receives the master's mercy and generosity, even to one who doesn't live up to expectations. Even one who doesn't do the best with what he's been given. I mean, this isn't new, right? Like, this is like, this is God of, of Exodus. 
Like this is the God that the, the people saw who said he's, he's, um, he's merciful to, to thousand generation and only holds sin against to the third, right? Like this is, this is not a new idea in, in history in relationship with God, but Jesus is showing it in a very pragmatic and real way to those of us in the midst of life. And so having experienced this in this grace and judgment, this recognition of, of exposure of his squandering and the mercy that came with it, the manager, steward, finds himself in a, with a problem. What am I gonna do? Read in verse three. He says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking my management away from me. Since my master is taking my livelihood away from me, but not my life away from me. He's taking away my, my role in the community, so what, what do I do? He says, I'm not, I'm not able to, to, um, to labor. So listen, in his thinking through, here's the problem. The, the manager recognizes the grace he receives and he doesn't want to leave the community. Because he could have just taken his life and, and gone off. Go, go find a job somewhere else, get out of town. But instead he begins to think through, like, hey, listen, I've just experienced something extremely wonderful and amazing. My whole life is wrapped up in this relationships and the relationships here in this reality. I don't want to leave it. So what do I do? Where do I find my place? How do I find my place? How do I stay a part of this kingdom? And so he thinks through, he's like, well, I can't, I can't go labor in the fields, maybe because of age or ability. Like, he's like, I, I can't do that. Physically, I'm unable to, like, I'm not gifted that way. I, I can't do it, nor can I beg. And like, there's, like we read this as kind of a prideful thing, but in this culture, begging is an acceptable form of, like, of getting resources, only though if you are truly disabled. If you were lame or blind or perpetually sick, begging was an, was, was an acceptable trade. It was the way you contributed to your own household, right? And so he knows, I am not lame, I am not blind, I am not sick. Like I have no excuse for not contributing for not using what I'm being gifted. I know I has limitations, but I have no excuse for not using what the, even within those limitations. And so what does he do? What is he gonna do? He knew that he had value, no excuse for not contributing to that value to the community. And so he uses what he does have at his disposal, his wit, his position, his relationships, his experience of the grace of the, and generosity of the master, and he takes a risk. He takes a huge gamble. He plans to bet everything, including his, his and his family's freedom in their life, right? On the quality of the mercy that he's already experienced from the master. This is what's happening in verse four. That he bets on, he gambles his entire life on the mercy that he's already received. That, we might hope, again, we might hope in the story that he finds a better way of repaying mercy and generosity rather than taking advantage of it. <laughs> but his first and wisest action is to assume that the master is generous and merciful to a squanderer, somebody who messes up and doesn't live up to expectations, and that that will continue even for a crook. So listen, squanderer and crook are not the same thing. There, we assume that in his squandering, there was some sort of malicious deal. That's not how the, the text reads. It just says he didn't do with what he had been given well. He squandered it. He wasted it. He, he didn't manage it rightly. Maybe it was out of lack of ability or lack of trust. There's all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily mean it was nefarious. It just wasn't done well, right? It was wasted. 
But now he's like, I'm moving beyond wasting it to being a crook, being dishonest, doing something illegal. And that he was merciful to me when I messed up here, he'll be merciful to me in this. That's huge, right? And it goes against everything in our, in our, in our, in our morality, right? To be like, no, that's not worse. We can't take advantage of grace, right? But that's what he's con, con, condoned for. That's what he's affirmed for. Again, we might hope that he would do something different, but he puts all his giftings and connections to full use and gambles on the master's character. And that's the big key. He's not gambling on his wit and his resources. He's not gambling that when he gives this break, that now he's gonna find a place in the community. He's gambling that when he gives this break, the master's gonna be generous to him and gracious to him to see that he still has a place in the community and everybody else will too. That the way the master responds is gonna allow, because listen, if it comes out after he does this, that it was all illegal, no one's bringing him into their house to manage it. No one's letting this guy go in here. It's one thing to be wasteful. It's another thing to be a criminal, right? Who takes, who takes full advantage of others. Nobody's bringing that guy in. And so he's betting on the response of the master in the midst of this to keep him within the community. His plan is to change the books, to bring the renters in, the farmers who've been working the land, and through his authority, change the deals that have been revoked, even though he knows it's illegal to do so. Once he's fired, once he's been said, turn in the books legally in that culture, he has no right to do the things he's about to do. So that means everything that he does, does is not, the, the rich man is not held accountable for. He doesn't have to honor any of the, the deals that the steward makes. There's nothing legally binding him to honor any of that. Everything that he does after this point is criminal, right? And so the rich man is not bound by any of it. And so he knows that. Again, that's not his plan. His plan isn't to get away with it. Like even though in the, like in, in the way the changes are made in the original language, it's like changing an F to an A. If you ever did that on your report cards, you don't have to admit it. Um, even though like that's kind of the way it works, like his expectation is not that the, the rich man won't know that he changed the books. That's not the expectation. Because again, everything is illegal. He knows that what's gonna come into account. This rich man lives in the community. He's going to hear and know all of this very quickly. It's why it happens so fast, right? So he's wanting to show the rich man something. He's wanting to show the community something in his, in his actions. And so he convinces the, 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 the renters that, um, to, to come in like, because he's acted on behalf of the master before and the master wants to be generous to, to them and so to change their, their debts. Um, and their both debts are identical in numerical value. It doesn't read that way in ours, right? Where it says like 50 for one and 80 for another. But in the monetar, monetarized version, it's the, same, it's the same amount. It's basically somewhere between a year and a half and three years of wages. So it's, it's extremely generous, Right? It's not like, hey, here's a 20% discount. Like, no, here's like the next three years you get to labor for free. Like that's, that's pretty incredible, right? Especially for renters on a deal. And so, and he does it quickly, wastes no time. But here's the thing, for this to work, a couple of things have to be true. One, obviously, like people have to assume that he's, he's acting on behalf of the, the manager. Like they wouldn't do this if they'd known he's fired, if they knew that he was, if he was already had the reputation of being somebody who's a crook. They wouldn't do this. Like there would, be, there would be leeriness to these things, right? And second, 
they wouldn't have accepted it if the, man, if the rich man's reputation wasn't already that he's generous, that they had already experienced some form of generosity like this before. Because that extenuous, of a, like, that large of a difference would automatically make them question what's going on here if they'd never experienced the generosity of the rich man before, right? So they've experienced the rich man's generosity at some point. And so it's, while it is amazing, it's not unfathomable. And so that's, a, again, just an important part of the, the characteristic. So the manager gambles everything on the mercy and generosity of his master. The, the fact that the master would be generous to his people like this and they would expect such generosity. They wouldn't be floored by it to the point where they disbelieved him. And also in that the master would be generous in his response to the crook. So that in that response, he might continue with life in the community, in the life, in the mercy and generosity of the king's kingdom of the king that he's a part of. One author notes that the manager's only option at this point was to entrust everything to the unfailing mercy of his generous master, who he had, can be confident will accept to pay the manager's salvation. Think about that. Like, he bet that in making this deal that the manager would honor, the rich man would honor it and that he would pay his salvation, even though it was expected that the one who wasted would be the one who's paying. But instead, the one who has is the one who pays. The one who failed doesn't pay. The one who was dishonored and taken advantage of paid. And he, he bet everything on that reality. This clever rascal, <laughs> I love that, was wise enough to place his total trust in the quality of mercy experienced at the beginning of the story. The fact that he was not condemned, made to pay everything, that he was allowed to have his life. He bet everything on what he experienced, and that trust was vindicated. And this, as the author says, disciples need the same kind of wisdom. Which brings us to verse 8. The master commanded the dishonest manager for his prudence, his wisdom. The dishonest manager. He moved from a one who screwed things up to being dishonest, right? So, so when, when Jesus says dishonest, everybody would have been like, wait, 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 wait a minute, dishonest? Like, like I, I thought he was the hero. But no, no, like he's, he's dishonest. He, he didn't do right. <laughs> like he didn't act rightly by doing a dishonest thing. He's called dishonest. First century, they would have caught that really quickly. Like, wait a minute, I thought this was the hero. Didn't, wasn't his actions just? He's like, no, 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 the actions aren't just. What he, what he bet on was true. His, his wisdom of who the master is and how his life could be saved through the master is wisdom, not his actions. His actions were dishonest. Jesus is not condoning his, his behavior. He's affirming his belief his betting, his gambling, his risk of faith on who the rich man really is. And saying that such wisdom, such wisdom by someone who seems like so outside of the norm, this generation is actually much wiser than even those who think they're in the light. Again, the bad steward his actions are illegal. Jesus isn't glorifying his actions. Instead, he is complimented on the wisdom of knowing where his salvation would come and that putting to use what he had been gifted. 
his wit, relationships, knowledge of the rich man's character, and experience of his own generosity, experience of the, the rich man's generosity would pay off. That's what's wise. That's what's wise. And not only would his bet paid off, but his debt would be paid for him. In Jesus' time and culture, again, the people would have, would have been unexpected that this guy, who was the hero, clearly the hero of the story, the center of the story, would be called dishonest, that he wouldn't be elevated, right? He's not elevated in his actions, but he is elevated in his wisdom of what is true, of knowing to trust for, who to trust for life and acting on that trust with all he has. To, as the psalmist said, as Lily read for us, abandoning himself to the rich man, to God. One pastor notes that this story has been worked over endlessly by men and women trying desperately to find some edifying moral lesson here in order to save Jesus from commending a crook for being a really good crook, a really clever crook. Yet this story becomes a story of embracing salvation, of embracing the kingdom of God as it really is, God with us, God for us. The kind of story that is the very core of Jesus' good news. So he did this with me. Just for a moment, let's just quiet ourselves and sit and let the story sink in a little bit. Normally, um, uh, in this season, we have time to discuss and to kind of go in a little deeper. We're going to do that over lunch. We'll have some things to help us kind of move further into the story over lunch. But let's just for a second, let the story sink in. So just close your eyes. If you're not comfortable closing your eyes, just look at the ground. It just helps you kind of be in a quiet space. As you do that, the band's going to come back up in just a minute and they're going to start playing for us. And when you hear them sing, it's going to be your opportunity to stand and respond to the thing that, um, to the invitation that God has given us today to respond as ones who, whether through confession of our squandering or through lack of defense, find ourselves in need to make a gamble, to trust your life to the one who gave his life for us, whose body, like the bread, was broken, whose blood, like the juice, was poured out. Already, the action already done, the generosity already received. And so when the songs start to play in just a moment, when you feel able to respond, come and receive the communion elements. Receive all that you need, believing, trusting, that all has been paid by the one who paid it all. We're just gonna have a moment of silence and then we'll be given the invitation to respond in song.